Well, I mean, now I can say to you, oh, it was really hard. At the time, I would not say that. It was really interesting. I think that that was very important for me to not be self-pitying, to just figure out how I could do it. Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I interview thoughtful, inspiring, and influential guests who are changing the way we think about what is possible in our lives, especially as we age. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist and fellow Zestful Ager. And I love to hear from my listeners, so leave me a comment on ZestfulAging.com. Our music is courtesy of Judy Banker, who was a guest on Zestful Aging. Her CD, Buffalo Motel, is out now, and you can find out more about her on judybanker.com. I know that everyone is feeling really stressed and anxious right now. We're all unsettled and feel out of control. So I created a free download for you for maintaining mental health based on my 30 years as a psychotherapist. Um, just go to zestfulaging.com and it is all yours. Well, as usual, I've, I've got my sleeping Jack Russell Sparky right by my side. So let's begin. We have a really lovely interview for you today. We're going to be speaking with Jane Bernstein, and she is an award-winning novelist. Her latest book, The Face Tells the Secret, is a story of a young woman trying to navigate life knowing that her mother did not really have the capacity to love her and uh, also held a very tragic secret. Her earlier books include Loving Rachel and Rachel in the World, two memoirs about raising a daughter with intellectual disabilities, and Bereft, a sister's story about her sister's murder and its aftermath. Her recent story, Still Running, was chosen for the Best American Sports Writing 2018. Welcome to the show, Jane. I'm so pleased to be here. Your stories uh, deal with some pretty painful subjects, uh, a mother's inability to love children with intellectual disabilities and murder. Uh, can you talk a little bit how you make these choices to write about? I guess I'll begin with talking about the memoirs. Um, I had initially been a fiction writer in my early life, and fiction was really the only genre that appealed to me. And then in 1983, my younger daughter was born with intellectual disabilities. And all of the invented stuff that I had been working with just kind of left my head. And really all I could do was think about her and worry about her because she was diagnosed with an uncommon disorder at six weeks, and we didn't really know how things were going to work out for her, how disabled she would be, how whether she would have severe intellectual disabilities. So in this period of time, my then agent said, would I consider writing a work of nonfiction? It wasn't even called memoir at that period of time. And initially, I have to say, initially I said no, I just didn't know how to do it. And then because there was there were so many questions about raising my daughter and and uh, so many ways that I faced life in, in a different way than I had before, I decided to give it a go. And what happened then was 
it gave me the means to uh, address stories directly from my own life, which I hadn't been doing before. So that's how I got into writing memoir and really facing, first of all, the long, complex journey of raising my daughter, and then writing about my sister's murder, which I had attempted to do in fiction and failed. And writing it as memoir really enabled me to face it much more head on. So that's a very roundabout answer to um, the beginning of writing about difficult subjects. Mm. Believe it or not, with a face tells the secret. I had started off thinking, well, I'm going to turn back to fiction and now I'm going to write a comic novel. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, I know. Oh, my I know. <laughs> goodness. That, I mean, what, but what I find interesting, and I don't know if you've had this comment before, and what, if you did this consciously, but, you know, this is a tragic book. There, I, the, the, the longing mm-hmm. uh, your main character, Roxanne, feels uh, – because her mom, you know, is this uh, physicist and has had trauma in her own life, real, just a very rejecting and critical mother. But you don't sensationalize it. There's this way that it it's like you weave it in in a way that feels, I guess uh, this word is overused, but kind of organic. It's not like, oh, you know, here's my mom, here's a relationship. I mean, you you bring it up, but then she also has joyful moments. She thrives in her career. She's bright. She has good things happen. That's always sort of the undercurrent. But there's a way in which it feels very... Um, I don't know. I I hate to say natural because we hope that that's not a typical relationship. A- am I am I m- making sense here? <laughs> Absolutely. I think one of the things that I've really wanted to do as a writer is to write something about the landscape of grief. I mean, it's not monolithic. Whatever mm-hmm. it is, mm-hmm. it's lived life, and for some of us, lived life has a lot of different ups and downs. And mm-hmm. humor, no matter what it is, at least for me, is one, there are times in which I just get a little kind of relief, or there are times in which, as a human being, I've just been wanted to turn to other things in my life, other pursuits, or the pleasure of seeing other people. or um, So, so again, in, in memoirs, I tried to convey something about the complexity of a long period of time of grief. And I think in the novel, that's reflected as well. I was interested in, yeah, what is it like to be wounded and yet you're still alive? Mm-hmm. And, and, and experiencing joy and friendships. Yeah. And she's a complex character, but she does kind of... In some ways, I would say, certainly at the end, you know, she becomes cautiously optimistic. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she knows what she's missing. Yes. yes there was that's... this beautiful scene, and I, I hope I don't bastardize it too too <laughs> thoroughly, but she's on the side of the road in her car. This is Roxanne. Her car breaks down, and then there's a spray of gravel. She's in the breakdown lane. And um, am I remembering this correctly? And she talks about how that's what it feels, these deep shards of grief and this emptiness and this metaphor of just being hit by these pellets 
of, I don't know, was it gravel or asphalt? And I thought, wow, I mean, what a, what a detail. And maybe this is unfair to say, but I, I feel like that can only really be, um, understood by someone who has experienced grief. Maybe that's the case. I think the thing that was interesting for me in writing this book is that, again, I know it's absurd given the finished product that I did want to write something that was really separate from anything else that I had written. Um, but the way I write is I just basically generate material until I see what it is that interests me. And <laughs> that's what it ended up being. Uh, I'm laughing because actually um, this book took a long time and one of the reasons it did is because I really thought I'm not going to write about disability again. I've just done that and done that and done that. Uh, but oh, now, you thought you processed it. Yeah. yeah. Now I realize this is just that these are themes of mine and that's what it is. That's my clay. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. And her complex relationship for our audience, the main character has a disabled twin sister that she only discovers in, is it middle age, Jane? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And then uh, it really changes her life and, and it actually transforms, I think, her ability to attach and, and to love. And But you capture this ambivalence so beautifully, this idea like, I don't even know if she knows I'm gone. Can mm. she see me? Is that a smile? I'm not sure. Does she like this? Who knows? Uh, I can't really quite tell. But then, but this attachment and this care. And it's not only about I have a disabled sister, and it's my responsibility to take care of her. That's not, that's not the whole thing. No, I think I, I wanted, uh, once I <laughs> accepted the material I had generated, I thought, okay, there's different kinds of caregiving, and they're all complicated. Mm -hmm. There was the mother who was neglectful, there's the sister who can't give back in any conventional way and there's the boyfriend mm -hmm. what do you take on uh, mm -hmm. so I was I was very very interested in again trying to dramatize the complexity of that landscape of what that's like um, and I think for most people that's what it is it's complicated mm -hmm. whichever way you turn uh, it's unless you are not paying attention uh, it is a it's a complicated journey and how do you balance your own life as a mom, as a professional, you know, as a professor, as an author, and you have this responsibility to your disabled daughter? How do you know when to say, I can't do anymore? Is there, do you have your own internal process? Um, yes, I do. Um, but again, for a long period of time, it wasn't easy. Uh, I mean, now, uh, since 2005, Rachel has been living in a community um, situation. Uh, so she lives with two roommates and 24-hour staffing. And uh, so she's outside my house. And of course, I'm still very vigilant. I'm still very involved. In fact, tonight is my night of seeing her. I see her every Thursday night, um, but it's easier. But in all the years I had her home, um, particularly in her long adolescence and early adulthood when she was really, really oppositional and had terrible behavior problems. 
um, my strategy basically was whenever she was away from me, whenever I had a moment, I would just hide. Um, I'll give you an example. Like she had, when she was younger, this wonderful Sunday programming, which we called gym swim, and it was adaptive phys ed and swimming. And so it was like two hours, which was amazing. And all the other parents sat on the bleachers. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And I found a place to hide. And the hiding, there's some negative aspects of that because I never formed a community. But the positive is that I got what I needed, which for me was to um, take care of my responsibilities as a teacher and to write. So any of those little windows I learned to use. That's how I protected myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I dare, I mean, there are not that many windows, <laughs> right? I mean, to be truthful, <laughs> yes. that's, that sounds beautiful in theory, but if you're dealing with a kid who's oppositional, and I don't know if she was physical or what, but it is more than a full-time job. Yes. And I think most caregivers are so depleted that they can barely feed them themselves and function. How were you able to get her to gym swim and then still have the energy and the focus to say, okay, I'm getting out of here. I'm going to go right and, and do my grading or whatever. How did, how did you have the strength for that? Well, I mean, now I can say to you, oh, it was really hard. At the time, I would not say that. It was really interesting. I think that that was very important for me to not be self-pitying, to just figure out how I could do it. I got services, extra mm-hmm. services. I got, when she was older, I got a behavior management specialist. I got funding for that. Um, I learned to beg. Um, mm-hmm. I learned to complain officially, which was really, really hard for me. You know, again, I just said to you, I didn't want to be self pitying, mm-hmm. but I learned to basically articulate what I realized was the true story about how I was beyond my limits. Mm -hmm. I'll give you one example, probably the best, one of the best things that happened uh, for her and for me is that I had a supports coordinator, a social worker, and I was telling her about summers and how difficult summers were. And she was able to find funding for a seven week sleepover camp, which had an educational component. And that was, first of all, it was wonderful for Rachel because she never had any separation problems. And so she was at this incredible camp. She went horseback riding and she had counselors from all over the world who were devoted to the kids who were there. Uh, And I had uh, seven weeks without her. It must have been (laughs) like that is heaven for a parent who's doing full-time, intense. Were you a single mom also, Jane, or did you have a partner at the time? I had a partner until um, she was around eight, Mm. uh, and then we split up. And he was, he's no longer alive. He was uh, a devoted father, um, but he was not a helpful partner as far as raising her. Mm -hmm. Um, And... And then after she was eight, we were, we were divorced before he split up. Then um, occasionally, like for instance, if I had spring break and she was in school, I would he was in New Jersey, I would call and say, can you take Rachel for a few days? And 
I would fly her there and he would take her for a few days. So we patched up things that way. There's a lot of patchwork uh, of things uh, coming together. And I have to give uh, a big plug to both my community and the JCC in my community because mm-hmm. they, the community and the JCC provided uh, after school um, services that really, really, really helped. So there was a lot of putting pieces together. Uh, it's not pieces. a, yeah, I mean, it's not a well-oiled machine when no. you have it. You know, you have to kind of, it's all, um, you know, they're, it's all over. They, they're overlapping and then they're not. And then this one doesn't know what the other hand's doing. And so, it you know, the parent or the caregiver becomes the coordinator of services. Yes, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of, and it's um, hard to figure things out. And in Pennsylvania, there are gigantic waiting lists. I mean, the story of getting her into this um, housing situation and getting her funding for a work site is, I mean, it took a whole book to describe it. But the short version is basically that I was told for a long time that I would essentially have to die in order to get her uh, into a housing situation outside my house. Um, you know, so <laughs> I was very persistent and mm-hmm. very stubborn. And if I didn't pity myself, I did work really, really, really hard um, to get that to happen. And so where in the story uh, is your sister killed? My sister was killed when I was 17, so I was a senior in high school. I see. So much before that. I see. And you wrote about her murder and its aftermath. And was that a therapeutic process for you? You know, I always tell people who ask if it's cathartic, yes, on some level. But, of course, there's such a big gap between writing for therapy or for catharsis and then trying to create a story that people you've never met will be interested in Mm -hmm. and so it went a lot beyond that Uh, and there were times in the making of bereft where i thought why am i doing this in the sense that it was so difficult for me Mm -hmm. to uh to revisit this time and and that's because um my family, which on the surface seemed to do really well, I mean, we never talked about her. And so it took me many, many years uh, and a lot of therapy uh, to be able to really process um, what happened. Mm-hmm. Do you ever think about yourself as unusually resilient? No. <laughs> I think about myself as somebody with um, an awareness that we only have one life to live. And I think in a weird way, I'm kind of an optimistic person. Mm. Um, And I think that that, so that's something inside me, maybe the way I was born, maybe that's just like something that you have. And that that came to the surface is just like, you know what, I'm going to find what I enjoy, and I'm going to get out there and do it, because if I don't do it, when will I do it? So Mm -hmm. that kind of kept me going, um, particularly through the Rachel years, uh, when everything was against my having any joy. (laughs) She was hard. Mm -hmm. She was really hard. 
so for instance, running, which we've talked about a little bit, um, that was a source of pleasure for me. But at the same time, I think the demands of motherhood are such that I always felt a twinge of guilt. I always felt like, oh, I'm being selfish, that I should do this or do that or do the other thing. There's and always it, more to do. Yes. Even now, even now, I think, um, why don't I see her more often? Why don't I pick her up on Sundays and take her out to lunch? Why don't I do this? Why don't I do that? At the same time, I know that what we've carved out, the two of us, Rachel and I, is really works really well at this point in our lives, but I still feel guilty. Mm. <laughs> How is it when you drop her off, back off after your um, your lunch? Does she does she say anything about, or, or does she resist that? Or she, well, she's changed so much. She's now thirty six. When she first moved uh, for really about a year, she would say to me, <laughs> I would take her home and she would say to me, you don't need to come in. She, I think she was afraid I was going to take her back home. She was so happy to leave me. Hmm. And then our relationship started to improve. Um, part of it was she had her own life. And part of it was I just stopped parenting her. Um, and particularly in the last few years, I work really hard at not criticizing her, not doing any parenting stuff. I just drive her home. We um, Sometimes we do puzzles on the iPad. She can use an iPad, which is fantastic. Or last week we played cards. She likes Uno. So we just like play a game. We you know do a little something and then I go home. It turns out that that way of interacting is better than going out to lunch, which we occasionally do, because there's so much behavior management that mm -hmm. I have to do if we go into any public place um, that sometimes it takes the fun out of doing it. Whereas if I do something that's low stress, mm -hmm. it's just she enjoys it. I enjoy it. Life is good. So you have to kind of uh, you have to be very careful about the environments that you're sort of setting her up to fail. Um, yes. She yeah. just can't manage whatever the impulse is. Yeah. I mean, we've, my, my older daughter, who's really devoted to her. Um, so the three of us have this thing that we do that I call not Christmas in New York. This is how it started. It's um, we fly her from Pittsburgh by herself from Pittsburgh, to New York and then for mm, a little 48 hours, a little bit more maybe, we do this whirlwind thing in the city and we keep her going. She likes to walk. We walk over the Brooklyn Bridge. We walk down to Chinatown for vegetarian dim sum. We take her to a movie, but it's like very tight and it's got a lot of transportation in it because she loves transportation. Oh. And the goal is that we can have fun together and not be angry with each other, not, not get irritated. But it took years for me to get away from the why doesn't why don't we have her stay longer? Maybe she'd like a pedicure. I should take her shopping. Those things just don't work. <laughs> so, um, uh, so it, you didn't you didn't mention some of the other um, sentiments like why do you have to act like that? People are looking at us. Yes. Why do you have to be weird? Yes. Um, and the and sort of the exhaustion of 
of and the uh, the sort of the energy of dealing with having someone who is not typical. Yes, it's so interesting. So my older my older daughter's name is Charlotte. So she and I talk about this a lot. And because she was an because Rachel was in the house when she was an adolescent, and there were some really embarrassing experiences, like the first time she had a boy over the house, Rachel walked into the room without clothes. You know, oh. those kind of, oh, <laughs> I know. Yes. So she has. Um, it's really interesting. She just is. You're going to be yourself, and I'm going to be myself in the world, and I don't care. She's really has that attitude and it's great um, no not sh there's no shame there yeah, none that none. this is not about me it's not a reflection of me people aren't going to think less of me because my that's sister right. acts different that's right everybody you do you and i'll do me and it'll be fine that's a pretty evolved uh stance for uh you know a, a well, teenager. Yeah, yeah. Not to say, I mean, it's life for siblings is really hard. And um, she has a, a lot of wounds from this as well. But uh, that piece of things is really wonderful. She thinks part of it is actually generational, that people in her generation, because of inclusion, are more used to seeing a diversity of people than people in our generation. And I think I think there's some truth in that. Mm -hmm. They're not hid away right. in the attic, right? That's very interesting, very interesting. So can you talk a little bit about the actual process of, of writing? Um, uh, do you have, uh, you know, if you're on, I don't know, a walk or a run or whatever you're doing in the classroom, you have some ideas, do you run over and jot them down? And how, how does it actually look when you're, uh, you have an idea for a book and, and you're actually writing it? What I, I still work in longhand with a fountain pen on line legal paper, very old fashioned. Uh, and what I do initially is I have some vague sense of a relationship or an emotion I want to explore. And I just generate material for as long as I can in longhand without editing, with no editorial process, no critical process. And again, to see what it is, what is it I'm feeling? What is it I want to write about? And then I start to shape it. If I'm working well, really, I'm in that generating phase for a while because I want to just be able to get it out and see it. So um, that might be in your in your home in private yes. Oh, yes. or in your okay. Yeah, and I have I have because I'm a really distractible person. That's it's another thing. <laughs> my daughter Rachel, I'm also distractible. So I've set up in my room in my bedroom outside of my beautiful home office with a wonderful windows and a view. I have this very comfortable chair in my bedroom, which is the most boring room in the house, and I call it the sacred chair. Mm. It has a hassock. It's very, it's, you know, it's great to sit in. And I have a rule that I set up, and the rule is uh, no phone, no electronic media, mm. uh, no internet, no anything that's going dis to distract me. And 
in creating that relationship. That is, I sit in this chair, this is all I do. I only do creative work. I don't read in the chair, do student work. Um, that's been incredibly helpful for me. Mm-hmm. I should keep more, a journal. I don't, I think, because I still write so much memoir as essays. But I do, very often when I come back from a run, I do, I do jot something down. Um, and I will, if while I'm cooking or in some sort of moment that I'm alive, I will just hastily write something down. And those things that I write down that feel meaningful at the moment very often are. Uh, and so I keep tabs on them. Hey, everyone. I wanted to tell you about a brand new podcast that I think you're really going to like. It's called Back to Happy, and it's from Suzanne Falter. She's the author of The Extremely Busy Women's Guide to Self-Care, and this podcast is one of a kind. Suzanne was a guest on Zestful Aging, and if you remember, Suzanne's college-age daughter, Teal, died suddenly. Her heart and kidney saved the life of a young woman named Amanda. Amara. And Amara's mom, Debbie, is also a survivor. Not only did she carry her daughter and her son through life and death experiences, she lost her home and her town of paradise in the worst wildfire in California history. And she did it all as a working single mom with a disability. On the Back to Happy podcast, Debbie and Suzanne team up to help you navigate crises and find the humor and heart in the hardest situations. They've got a really unique perspective that's going to help you shift your perspective. And they're also going to take your questions and share their incredible story. So I'm really recommending you take a listen to Back to Happy. It's going to change your mood and your outlook. And it's on Apple Podcasts. Do you dream about your characters? Uh, no, I think about them a lot as if they're real. Um, they're absolutely in my headspace for a long time, um, which is really almost, it's so close to a, to a dream life. They're just like really close to the surface. Yeah, that's... that sounds <laughs> like a little bit of an altered state. Yeah. And even though Roxanne's mom is just brutal, it, as I said, you know, you don't, it's not sensationalized. And I think there, you also, there's a compassion that you can have for her knowing that even though I don't want to give away the book, but she's a pretty uh, tough character. <laughs> um, she has a her own life of trauma. Yes, I, I tried very hard to see her with compassion. I mean, I know she's not likable, Mm -hmm. but I tried really hard. And I purposely didn't elaborate on her trauma because I felt thematically in the book, Roxanne is dealing with the fact that her mother's trauma overshadows anything she might feel. And so I didn't want to do that in the book either. I didn't. I'm sure that you're very aware that the legacy of the Holocaust, uh, you know, is something that clinicians are, uh, uh, you know, know about and people who grew up with parents or grandparents that have uh, 
either lived or not lived through the Holocaust. I mean, there's a very predictable kind of upbringing. Yes. My closest friend was the daughter of survivors. I dedicate the book to her. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, this was not my world. Mm -hmm. Uh, My parents are American born, although they're first generation. Mm -hmm. Um, But this was a piece of the world that I grew up in, in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways. Is that something that you had in mind as you were writing this, that this is the legacy of the Holocaust? I think partly if I really look deeply into uh, what was going on in the writing of this book, not consciously, I think a combination of my sister's murder and the Holocaust, Mm -hmm. that it's a kind of those things together. Uh, equaled this because uh, clearly, although my mother was not that mother, um, she was somebody who was just wounded in a way um, that she seemed to recover from, but really didn't. Mm-hmm. So you were able to touch those feelings and those experiences, even though it wasn't exactly yours. Yes. It was a rough approximation. Yes. And mm-hmm. I, it, fiction for me comes from a very, very, very different place from memoir. I mean, memoir, I'm really mining my own life and looking for ways to assemble lived experience to tell a story. But in fiction, for me, again, as I've said, I'm just like generating the material and seeing what it is. And then sometimes I can see, oh, that's where this came from. Mm-hmm. But I think in this book, um, it actually oddly took me a while to say, oh, that's what that's where this material is coming from. Mm-hmm. And be true to it. This channel, unconscious channel. Is there a bit of an emotional hangover when you write some of these, uh, I guess they're not exactly scenes, but chapters that are so delicate and painful. Do you have to kind of recover yourself a little bit after yeah. going into that place? Yeah, I do. I do. Um, but I'm drawn to it uh, because I think it's strange. These are all ongoing issues. I mean, my sister's murder was a lifetime ago. And, you know, on some level, for many, many years, I've been done with that. I don't actively grieve, but it's with me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think as a therapist, you know, it's like we have these, we all have these wounds. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we live with them? So I can tell you, for instance, any kind of gun violence, any picture of a, of a child or a teenager in the news just opens everything up for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, So that's an example of, you know, I'm still living with it in a way, but not at all. It's not an open wound, but it's still a wound. Yeah. Yeah, it's tender. You want to talk a little bit about running and what that does for you? Running is like the (laughs) best thing. One of the best things in my life. I shouldn't say the best thing. Many wonderful things. Um, I started running yeah, 1974, 1975, really a long time ago. And I did because I had been, before then I'd been living in London and I had terrible bronchitis from the mold. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I could hardly breathe. And here I was a really young person, I could hardly breathe. And so I felt like, you know, it's time to get out and be physically fit. And what I found was that running was something I was meant to do. And it is just, 
uh, a source of joy. And I say that because at 70, I don't necessarily want to go out. <laughs> and I don't like the first couple of minutes. And I'm really slow. But once I'm out there, um, everything kind of opens up. Uh, I... I never say, oh, I'm going to think about this or I'm going to think about that. It just kind of happens. And I moved, I live in Pittsburgh, very close to a 750-acre woodland park. Ah. And it's beautiful. So I watch the seasons change. I really get very attuned to the outside world, which it turns out is also a source of joy for me. Um, so you're doing mindful running. Yeah, yeah. So I just love it. Nothing takes its place. Uh, I mean, I like to walk, and I'll walk in the woods, but it doesn't do the same thing as, as running does. Are you familiar with some of the research about being in, in with trees and bushes? No, and, no. Oh, I'd love well, to learn. Uh, there's some really compelling research about what that does to your brain, and um, I can give you some references, but you're not make, you're not imagining it. It's really locking into some of your evolutionary needs. Our brains are actually kind of old, antiquated. <laughs> you know, they haven't quite caught up with where we are in 2020. And um, the shapes, the fractals, you know, are uh, reoccurring shapes in nature and seem to really make our brains happy because it's stimulating, but not overstimulating. Oh, so, I'd love to see that. That's, yeah, that's... I love. this is a new uh, area of interest for me. And I have a couple of people um, as guests who talk about it. And it is fascinating to see the science behind why it feels so good to walk um, on any kind of wooded trail, any kind of near trees that there, there's a real, there's a hard science reason for that. So I'll share that with That's you. That's so interesting because yeah. even in New York City, where I spend mm -hmm. a fair amount of time, I mm -hmm. run in Riverside Park or Central Park. It's the mm -hmm. same thing. So I'm seeking out. <laughs> yeah. I'm seeking it out. There's something also, I don't know if there's research on this. There's something about the varied terrain. Pittsburgh is mm -hmm. very hilly. Mm -hmm. And people say, oh, it's not hard. But it turns out the hills, are. I love, I love the fact that the, trails are winding and the up and down mm. of them uh there's some rhythmic thing that feels really mm -hmm. good mm -hmm. and certainly might might be a metaphor for you know you've talked about the ups and downs that there's some pretty deep troughs but you've also you know you said you're optimistic and that you know there's a lot of goodness and joy yeah oh uh, yeah yeah that's mm. that's true well, I have uh, been singing the praises of The Face Tells the Secret. It is an extraordinary work, and I'm so grateful that um, you reached out to me and we were able to have this conversation. It's, it's interesting to hear how it actually starts, you know. How does this piece of work begin and in long hand <laughs> in uh, with a fountain pen on a yeah. legal pad uh it's it's fun to know the kind of behind the scenes yeah thank you so much yeah, yeah. so much it's, it's been it's been a pleasure jane thank you thank you nicole it's been wonderful talking to you
Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share it with some of your friends. I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at NicoleChristina.com. It's no secret that everyone's feeling pretty restless and unsettled right now. Our lives are upside down and the future is feeling pretty uncertain. But if you're anything like me, organizing my stuff can help me feel a little calmer. It's something I can do to help me feel a little more in control and in charge of my own life. If you think decluttering could help you feel better and you could use a little assistance with that, check out the online course I've developed with professional organizer and designer, Carrie Luteran. It's called Too Much Stuff. And too much stuff is different from other courses or articles or guidance you may have used. Uh, We give you clear steps to deal with the clutter and the tools to help you face the overwhelming feelings and the emotions that come up when we're going through our clutter. And a lot of those emotions are just feeling anxious or guilty or just basically flooded with a lot of different confusing feelings. The course is really practical. It's realistic. The lessons are short and punchy, and they're really manageable. We're not trying to set you up for some long, exploratory, you know, super in-depth, burdensome experience. We want something really helpful for you right now. We all need help with our anxiety. So, Being surrounded by more calm and less chaos can really help. So now's a good time to clear out the clutter so we can focus on what's really important in our lives. So find out more at zestfulaging.com. You'll see more about this under the web courses tab. If you have any questions, just shoot me an email at zestfulaging at gmail.com. Thanks so much. And stay tuned next week for another interview with a fascinating and inspiring guest.